0: Hi, it's Mark Bittman, and welcome to Food. As always, you can email us at food at markbittman.com. Please do let us know what you're thinking, and we will respond. Please also subscribe to this podcast and rate us. Let us know what you think. Consider, too, subscribing to our near-daily newsletter, The Bittman Project. That's at bitmanproject.com. We do appreciate your listening and reading, and um, hope you think it's worthwhile. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS. You know, those forever chemicals in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. Aquatru has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bitman receive 20% off any Aquatru purifier. Just go to aquatru.com. That's a q u a t r u dot com, and enter code Bitman at checkout for 20% off any Aquatru water purifier. Go to aquatru.com and use the promo code Bitman. B i t t m a n. This week, we're revisiting an interview I did in May of 2022 with my friend and former colleague, the great Frank Bruni, on the occasion of the release of his most recent book called The Beauty of Dusk. It's a really interesting interview. I enjoyed it a great deal, Frank. It's just filled with fascinating ideas, and um, I think you'll enjoy it. Please stay tuned. Hi, Frank. It's nice to have you here. Hi, Mark. Nice to catch up with you. You should say what your new book is about, because that's what we're going to talk about. And there is a very fundamental and underlying concept here. So, My new book, The Beauty of Dusk
3: on Vision Lost and
0: Found, is
3: about what the subtitle says. It's about a medical incident in October 2017 that stole the functional vision in my right eye and put me in a situation in terms of the rare condition I was diagnosed with Where I live with significant odds, about twenty percent, the doctors say, of losing sight in my left eye too, and thus I would be potentially legally blind. And the beauty of dusk is the story of how I came to terms with that. It's a little bit of a medical story, but it's much, much more um, about my emotional and psychological adjustment to that, you know, initially terrifying reality, which is not terrifying any longer, and so. What I describe in the book is how I traveled from shock and terror to a much healthier place of understanding that none of us has complete control over what's going to happen to us in terms of the events in our lives, but that all of us have an astonishing, a great amount of control over how we respond to those events. And when you realize that, um, and when you kind of teach yourself at that kind of juncture how to steer toward positive toward a positive attitude, how to steer toward an appreciation of all that you still have versus what has been taken from you. It's a very important life adjustment and life skill, and I think it enables me, and I hope it will enable others, to face aging with much more kind of grace and much more optimism.
0: Is there a uh, finite period in which your other eye is out of danger, or that's just something you're living with forever?
3: My condition, which goes by uh, the initials N-A-I-O-N, and essentially means that a stroke of the optic nerve ruined one of my optic nerves, and it means that I am probably physiologically or anatomically more disposed to this kind of event, you know, than, than someone who hasn't had it happen to them. It's rare enough, and there's little enough research into it, in part because there's not a great pharmaceutical market for whatever treatment they might someday find that there's a lot of disagreement among doctors. So I have had doctors say to me that there is some belief or that they ascribe to the belief that if two years pass and your other eye is okay, your odds are improving. If five years pass, you know you may even be down now to 10% or 5%. And yet, doctors admit they don't know. And I have, through the internet, through emails I get, um, communicated with quite a number of people who had this happen to one eye and then the second eye 10 years later or 12 years later, so nobody really knows. Right,
0: you're at the five-year point now, right? I'm
3: at the, I'm closing in, boy, I lose track of time. I don't know about you, Mark, but I lose, the older I get, the more I lose track of the chronology and the timeline and how much time has passed, but I believe I'm at the four-and-a-half-year mark. Yeah, yeah,
0: I think you are also. As a stranger, I will say, based on my reading, I think you are also. Yeah, I think that's the correct math. I th-
3: I think to be totally accurate, I may be at the four year and five month mark. I don't know, but I'm
0: around four and a half. You quote, I think Nora Ephron, and you say in journalist newspaper whatever lingo, everything is copy. It was Nora Ephron, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, no, uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's a famous phrase of Nora's that became famous enough and associated enough with her that it's the title of her son Jacob's posthumous documentary about oh, her it's called Everything go. Is
0: Copy. Yeah. I guess I could have known that. But your job, and mine to some extent, and everyone who tries to do this well, is to generate good copy, meaningful copy. I'm kind of wondering how you did that here. Did you grow into this book? I mean, it's not really, there's a finite event. This thing happened to you. You obviously were writing right until the last minute, into well into last year, and um, you were growing, you were changing, you were thinking, you were becoming more comfortable with your situation, seeing your life differently, and so on. It feels like very much the book itself is, is an evolution. It's not just this thing happened, here's what happened, here's the story. No, uh,
3: yeah, that's exactly right. I was lucky enough to be friends with Nora in the last decade of her life, and I hear her voice and, and that everything is copy dictum makes a lot of sense for those of us in the words business. I didn't right after this happened think, oh, I'm going to write a book about this. Um, But yet I did almost as a reflex, Mark, because it's what people like us, us sometimes do. I did immediately start behaving journalistically. You know, I immediately, not immediately, but almost immediately began doing quite a bit of research. I began writing down what I was going through. Just, I just had this feeling I should, or it was just a way to process it. Uh, and I had all these files in my computer that, for some reason, I named i diary, like e y e. like this so I had i diary one. Then when that got long and I got tired of scrolling to the bottom to add to it, there was i diary two and i diary three. and a lot of a lot of the stuff in those i diaries is now in only slightly polished form in the book. And then a lot of the book is not from those. But I just had a sense that there's no untangling, making sense of this for myself as a human being. And going through this and reflecting on it and translating it into words as a writer. And I felt as time went by that I was essentially developing a set of coping skills that had nothing specifically to do with my compromised and imperiled eyesight, but had everything to do with a juncture in your life. And often it's a medical event where you encounter struggle and uncertainty of a magnitude that you hadn't imagined before where you get a sort of you know, really emphatic lesson in the limits of your control over certain things that happen to you. And I, I felt like it was a very universal human situation that I was making sense of. And I hoped that as a writer, as someone who I hope can articulate things with some precision and eloquence, that I could translate that into a journey that would resonate for a whole bunch of people. And so that's kind of how my arc and the
0: book all come together or fit together. That makes great sense. And by the way, I think it's a great, a terrific read. And um, there are so many issues that I'm a little older than you or more than a little older than you, but there are so many familiar issues in here, whether you are confronting some particular physical problem or not, that just, you know, you just learn stuff and things change.
3: I should mention, if I can just interject, I should mention because I'm making this sound way more about me. One of the things I do in the book that I feel is important to it is I I interview and, and paint portraits of many other people. So to my point about my experience, I think being quite a representative and universal one, except for the fact that there's a rare eye condition in mine, it could have been cancer, it could have been multiple sclerosis, it could have been Parkinson's. And there are people with all of those conditions in the book. I, I went in search of wisdom from people I knew or people I was just meeting who had come upon this sort of juncture in their lives, You know, whether it was vision-related or hearing-related or all those other things I mentioned, and had found a way to steer toward the most productive, most fulfilling, most positive place. And so those portraits are throughout the book because those are the people I learned from. And those are people I think anybody reading the book can learn from, just very wise and inspiring people, you know, uh, a high-ranking judge, um, a server in a restaurant I
0: encountered. I mean, all kinds of people. I'm going to go a little out of order of how I thought I'd go. And you say this, this is not every cloud has a silver lining. This is learning. This is wisdom. This is the good part of aging in a way. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I think the book
3: is very much about aging. And yeah, I I hope it's not as simple as clouds have silver linings, though many clouds do have silver linings. But it is the case that you can indeed focus, and I think it is um, a crime and wasteful not to, on what blessings remain versus what has been lost. We will all encounter limits diminishments that we hadn't expected and that we would rather not be saddled with. But once those have come, you have a choice. You can dwell on them. You can do a kind of angry and self-pitying tally of what you don't have, which I realized quickly is pointless. Or you can do a much more happy-making accounting of what's still available to you, what what agency and potency you still have. You can connect with gratitude my God, that you're still here. You know, Mark, I'm talking to you from L.A. We have both spent a lot of time in the food world. You're still, you much more than I. But I was, I was walking back to my hotel from a store last night. I was doing, I mean, walking in L.A. I know that's already exotic, right?
0: <laughs> well, you're a New Yorker.
3: <laughs> no, you know, and, uh, and I mentioned this because of our overlap in the food world. You know, Jonathan Gold came to mind, right? Because here I am in L.A. And Jonathan Gold died at 58 from pancreatic cancer. And then I thought, uh, then Josh Ozersky popped into my mind because Jonathan Golda popped into my mind. Josh Ozersky was in his forties when a seizure in a hotel room um, took his life. Then Anthony Bourdain popped into mind and we all know what happened to him. These are important bits of context when you are living a life that is more, that is suddenly more challenged than it was when your future suddenly has some uncertainties that it didn't. You're nonetheless still living this life. You're nonetheless, you're here. You still have access to so many things, so much pleasure, so much joy. And that's not true of many other people. And there's a blessing and a prompt for gratitude in that in and of itself.
0: Yeah, you write a lot about Bourdain, and it was very thoughtful. And all, all of this is it. it has a, you know, it smacks of Buddhism, which just means that that's an old religion that's thought things through and expressed them pretty well in a semi-secular way so it's not that surprising but all of these things you talk a lot about resignation versus defiance which is you know i talked i i must talk to my shrink about exactly that once a month it comes up and says you have to acknowledge that you're getting older and at the same time you can't just give in to getting older my father spent the last 30 years of his life basically, in a chair, which is kind of a shame since that was a third of, <laughs> third of his life. And um, that's kind of what, I don't think he thought of it as resignation, but it sure looked like that from the outside. And yet, if you're defiant, I, I'm trying to think of, I mean, if you look like Jack LaLanne or something, right. <laughs> you know, you just say, I refuse to get older, well, that's not the smartest way to go about it either. There's some kind of very fine balancing act there. No, I think you just put your finger
3: on, on the trick of aging and the trick of life, which is finding that balance. I mean, it's the serenity prayer, right? God, give me the strength of will. I, I never get that right, but it's about, you know, give me the courage and strength to change the things I can change and accept the things I can't. Isn't that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing pretty badly. pretty close. Yeah,
0: I think the that's serenity right. Prayer.
3: But I mean, there's the reason why that is such an enduring and popular set of words, because that really is the trick. You know, um, you don't want to rail against things you can't change and tilt at windmills, but you also don't want to be an utterly passive recipient of things that happen to you and do nothing, uh, you know, to kind of exert your own will. And, and so, I, I mean, I think that's in small situations, in large urgent situations, I think that is always the trick and the challenge and that was pretty clear to me early on in terms of in terms of my condition especially because i was right away told there's no treatment and yet there's this clinical trial of something we're trying out and do you want to do it and by the way it involves getting injections straight into your eyeball you know you begin to say what is buying into myths and false hope and what is exerting a degree of agency that is in fact very psychologically healthy and productive and i think It's important to find a balance, but it's equally important to say the balance isn't the same for every individual. I said yes to that trial. I let them stick the needle in my eyeball. For me at that moment in time, it was an important act of something akin to valor that made me feel better about myself. For someone else, it might not have been. There's no right or wrong decision there. But you do need to think about these things seriously. And you need to think about them very wisely in terms of your own situation at the time, your own
0: state of mind. Yeah. A couple things about that. I, I did think that was courageous of you, by the way. And I personally felt relieved when they stopped that trial. So, <laughs> so you didn't have to get any more of those shots. Although I'm sure that was disappointing also when they told you, well, this isn't going to work. We all know people or maybe not everyone, but most of us know people who've had terminal cancer and have had to make sort of similar decisions about experimental chemotherapy or other kinds of radical surgeries or experimental radiology whatever and at some point some people say no i'm not going to do that and sometimes people say yeah it sounds terrible but i want to be alive as long as i can and those are decisions many of us are going to have to face i mean in a way what happened to you was you i mean forgive me if this is insensitive you kind of got old in a hurry i mean you kind of skipped your 50s in a way or something you know you went from a healthy 40 year old to somebody who got scared or person in his forties to somebody who got scared about losing an important part of his life and, and confronting the end. But it happened more abruptly than it. Well, than it did to me if I'm just going to speak personally, because for me it was, was more gradual. There's no defining event. It just became clear at some point that I was losing my, some of my abilities.
3: No, I mean, that's not insensitive. That's
0: accurate. And I, I say it in different words in the book.
3: In fact, in the same early portion of the book where I'm framing certain things about the story and, and the, same, the same set of pages where I mentioned Nora Ephron, I mentioned Michael Kinsley, who, you know, enormously successful, talented journalist who um, was diagnosed with Parkinson's in his mid-40s, I believe it was. I may have the age a few years wrong. And he wrote a book about coping with that early Parkinson's diagnosis. And he called the book old age and he called it old age because as he says very eloquently in that book, he, he liked me as boomer. He liked me had that feeling of invincibility that seems to be peculiar to the boomer generation, not exclusive to it, but definitely peculiar to and pronounced in it. And he said that he felt like going through Parkinson's in his 40s and dealing with the ways in which that diminished challenge you know limited him. He described it as a foretaste of old age, of what of what he said he felt like he was a scout for his generation, experiencing old age. <laughs> That's
0: great. That's great. I remember that.
3: And I had that feeling before I turned to that book, but I hadn't, you know, kind of it hadn't cohered in my mind to that extent. But yes, I feel that's exactly right. And and I am I have less trepidation about getting older and the other physical things that are going to happen because I do feel like I got an accelerated crash course
0: in aging through this. That sounds right. Stay tuned for more from me and Frank Bruni.
2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out Aquatru. Aquatru purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. Aquatru has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. Aquatru comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any Aquatru purifier. Just go to Aquatru.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the Multi-Terrain Select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I'm going to ask you one more question about the book and then take a little time to talk about other things, including food. So we have an excuse to do this as a podcast of mine. You went through this process, you tried to fix it with experimental procedures, you had to adapt to it and so on. And then it seems it made you, obviously it made you look forward, we've been talking about how it made you look forward and consider your present and future in a different way. But you also reconsidered everything, every way you'd been until this happened. You reconsidered your past. You started to think of yourself, well, you tell that, assuming I'm right.
3: No, you're right. Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, I I looked back on my past and I felt a great deal of shame for the number of things that I had not felt adequate appreciation for. And I felt shame about the number of things I used to stew about and feel envy about. You know, I mean, I... I would, it would really bother me that of the four siblings in of the four children of my parents, I'm one of four siblings, that I was the only one who burned in the sun and everybody else tanned, that I was the one with the slower metabolism, that I was not as uh, extroverted and socially fluid and fluent as my older brother, that I didn't have the sort of powers of concentration. Of, I mean, I... That, that's just in my family, but I was a real spoiled brat in keeping ridiculous track of ways in which people around me, be they be they relatives or classmates or friends, had things better than I did. And I realized when I was contemplating the prospect of blindness that all of those were the most it was the most ridiculous collection of slights and what a waste of emotional energy and time and how spoiled. Now, I'll go a little bit easier on myself now and say, I think, again, in that sense, I'm representative. I think a lot of us do that. My book is, in part, a plea that we stop doing that. I have, in the oddest way, I have been a happier person since this happened to me than before. I'm not glad this happened to me. And it's not this one thing that makes me happier, and it wasn't instant. But the reflection I went through after it that I was forced to go through after it, the psychological and emotional work that I was forced to do, those have made me a better, more peaceful, more contented person, as I talk to you right now, than I was the day before I
0: woke up and couldn't see out of my right eye. I mean, I think that's why it's a valuable book. It's it's an interesting story, and you're a great storyteller, but it's a credit to you that you were able to do that because one possible response of course, is just getting pissed up, pissed off and being angry about everything for the rest of your life. And then having a real stroke (laughs) and instead you reflected and, and you, you started to think about what you had and have instead of what you didn't and don't. And that it does to me, it sort of comes down to that.
3: I think, I think so. But I, I, uh... Uh, and too many people go the other route, but I think, I think the majority go my route. I really do. I think most of us, I'm not, this isn't the story of an extraordinary person. this is the story of an ordinary person. And part of my message is to be less fearful about what's coming down the road, because you, if I found ways to adapt to this, and if I found the resilience that I did Trust me, <laughs> you can too,
0: because I'm not an extraordinary person. I'm quite an ordinary one. Well, that's that's beautiful. I I do think that adaptation, whether it's common or uncommon, was is a sign of strength and intelligence and emotional intelligence too. So you may be right. Many people may be capable. Most people may be capable of that, but you did it, and it's, and it, and you're you're telling the story in a way other people can appreciate it, which is. Super cool. One other thing is that it sounds like you had great parents, which cannot have hurt. And if you want to say anything about them, fine. If not, we can move on. Well, no, I know you want to talk about food, and I'm always happy to talk about food. I
3: did have great parents. I, I lost my mother way too early. She was 61 when she died. And unfortunately, my father has has the kinds of health and cognitive problems now that 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 make the relationship different than it was in the past. But yes. Uh, wonderful, wonderful parents who were portraits of strength and resilience and coping. And I think that stuff you know, gets embedded in you in a way that doesn't necessarily come into play early in your life. But I think it's there to draw from as an inspiration, as an example later on. It never goes away. The,
0: the, the imprint our parents make on us is just immeasurable. You have had as varied a career as anybody I know in journalism, and one of your half-decades was uh, as the restaurant reviewer for the Times. When the restaurant reviewer for the Times was still probably the most powerful restaurant reviewer in the United States, or certainly in the top two or three, what's your relationship with food been like since then? My relationship has been much different, in the sense that
3: you know, and part of it is a matter of time what time you have and what energy you have, you know, as you, um, you know, I moved on to other things. I'm for 10 years, I wrote an op-ed column for the times. Now I'm teaching at Duke and I still write for the opinion section, but in a, in a, in a more limited form, uh, because I don't have time to be full-time anymore. And, you know, so I don't, I don't go out and prospect the way I used to do the way, I, the way I, that was my professional job before I'm not, up to date on who the new hottest chef is and what the new hottest uh, answer to tuna tartare in the appetizer section of the menu is, you know, but I still love food and I still love restaurants. And in a way I get more joy out of them now than ever, because it is an inimitable adventure to be a restaurant critic for a paper like the times or to be the restaurant critic of the New York times. It is a heady and surreal experience, but you're not a normal diner. You know, I mean, you, you can't become a regular in any restaurant because your job is to go to the next one, the next one, the next one. You can't have truly normal interactions with the host or hostess, with the chef, with the servers, because there's this dance going on where everyone's pretending they don't realize it's you there and you're pretending you don't know that they know you're there. And and now, you know, when I find a restaurant that I love, I can go back once a week if I feel like it. So normal. I can get Yeah, I can get to know the personnel there. And if you're an ex-restaurant critic, there's this wonderful, seemingly lifelong vestigial respect paid for you, paid to you, (laughs) you know? And so the chef can say, hey, there's this dish you didn't order that I really love. Can I, I'm going to send it out to you not, and he doesn't have to, he or she doesn't have to feel like, oh, Frank's going to feel bribed." I don't have to feel like, oh, I've been compromised because there's no restaurant critic hat anymore. It's just, and so it's really, really nice. I get
0: a little of that too. Do you cook?
3: I do more than I more than I used to. Partly, that's just a function of my lifestyle on Chapel Hill. You know, it's a function of extra counter space. A couple of weeks ago, I got one of those combo pressure cooker air fryer contraptions, which is large enough that even though I had a decent sized kitchen in Manhattan, I would never have inflicted it on my counters. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. In a big suburban house in Chapel Hill, like the air fryer, pressure cooker, spaceship sitting on my <laughs> counter, doesn't feel like the most ridiculous, you know, use of space.
0: What did you have for dinner last night?
3: Uh, well, I'm on the road. Oh, right, you
0: are on the road. And I
3: did an event here uh, with a great, a great book promoting organization called Writers Block B L O C, at the at a music hall uh, in Beverly Hills, where one of those things where. Um, a wonderful, wonderful uh, writer and writer and comic named Carol Leifer interviewed me. And that went late enough that when I got back to my hotel, like there was just no food to be, there was was a single restaurant within several blocks that seemed to be open. And it was a Thai place, the name of which I cannot even tell you. And that was, that was food as most people experience. It was a hunger-sating pile (laughs) of calories at the end of the day, you know? It sounds like you could have done worse. I could have done much worse, yeah. There was a McDonald's that was also open, and I did have the Thai place. So, yes, yeah. I could have done there worse. You I don't
0: mean to diss McDonald's, but it's just not my bag. But you can diss McDonald's. So, last question. You, um, you mentioned being an opinion columnist. You were the restaurant reviewer before that. You were the Rome bureau chief before that, which is a pretty incredible thing. I think that's when we met, actually. And you covered the Bush White House. As I said, as varied a career as anybody has had are you happy teaching do you think there's something next you're not yet 60 so you have plenty of time to work if you want to
3: (laughs) i've never planned things out in advance mark i've got um my my gig at duke is at least five years and i'm not even at the end of the first year yet you know i would probably like to write another book i've been very fortunate this book seems to have um have done well i mean it's only a week and a half old but uh we got news this week that it debuts at number five on the nonfiction, uh, bestseller list at the time. Congratulations. So congratulations. That's great. So I'm usually relieved and grateful, but par- partly relieved and grateful because I would like, <laughs> I would like there to be an appetite at my publishers for me to write another book. Should I have, you know, should I figure out what that next book is? Um, I, I like, I like long form writing like this. I think, um, I'm very proud of the way this book turned out. I think there's some, there's some writing in it that is how I intended it to be for better or worse. And and it does seem to be resonating with people. So, I mean, I will, I will keep writing uh, as long as I can and what form that will take. I don't know whether I will be at Duke longer than five years. I don't know. You know, it's been, I've been surprised, but I didn't know I would be a restaurant critic until about, four months before I was a restaurant critic. So <laughs> right. I've, I've, I've not gone wrong by letting life surprise
0: me, and I'm going to continue to be ready for those surprises. That's great. Well, I mean, it seems like you're doing doing well. It's lovely to talk to you. So thanks, Frank. It's, been, it's really been great to have you here. Thank you, Mark, for being interested in this,
3: and thank you for all of your counsel and your friendship across the years.
0: A recipe from Mr. Bruni. Well, Frank, I have to say there's a thing about Frank Bruni that nobody knows except for me and Frank Bruni, which is that I had my first Hendrix martini at the insistence of Frank. I can't remember where we were, someplace on the Upper West Side. And he said, have you had a martini with this gin called Hendrix? This must have been 15 years ago. And I said, no. And he said, have it. So. I am not going to celebrate by having one now, but I am going to read you this cocktail Frank invented called the Bruni Berry, and it's really simple. You take two strawberries, and you muddle them, and then you transfer them to a cocktail shaker, and you combine them with a small piece of jalapeno. Now, you're going to have to judge that. Some of us will want a piece of jalapeno that's an eighth of an inch by an eighth of an inch in size, and others will want Half of a chili, so that's up to you. Muddle the strawberries into a cocktail shaker with a little jalapeno, a tablespoon of honey, a tablespoon of water, a shot that is an ounce and a half of tequila, any tequila you like, and a half an ounce of fresh lime juice. Shake all of that together with ice cubes, strain into a short tumbler with fresh ice, and add a sprig of cilantro. It's an awesome drink, and some people do drink it with tonic or soda, so you might try that. Again, strawberries, jalapeno, honey and water, half and half, tequila, and lime. That is Frank's Bruni Berry. Thank you once again to the always eloquent Frank Bruni for joining me. Follow him on Instagram at frankabruni64, that's Frank abruni 6 and on Twitter at Frank Bruni. His book, The Beauty of Dusk, is available wherever you like to buy books. Thank you, too, to my co-host and producer, Kate Bittman, and our engineer, Davis Lloyd. Thank you for listening. Do follow me at Bittman or at Mark Bittman on Instagram. Join us next week when we will have somebody amazing. Thanks again.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,